I wonder if we could turn to those scriptures that we have been looking at in these last two times in the letter of the Apostle Paul to the Ephesians chapter 6 from verse 10 Finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might put on the whole armor of God that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil for our wrestling is not against flesh and blood but against the principalities against the powers against the world rulers of this darkness against the hosts of wicked spirits in the heavenlies wherefore take up the whole armor of God that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand Stand therefore, having girded your loins with truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, with all taking up the shield of faith, wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, with all prayer and supplication, praying at all seasons in the Spirit, and watching thereunto in all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. And on my behalf that utterance may be given unto me in opening my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. And in the second letter of the Apostle Paul to the Corinthians, chapter 10, verse 3 and 4, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 and 4, Although we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but mighty before God, or through God, or in the presence of God, to the casting down of strongholds, casting down imaginations, and every high thing that is exalted against the knowledge of God, and bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. And then if you will turn to the letter of the Apostle Paul to Timothy, the first letter, chapter 6, verse 12. <clears throat> fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on the life eternal whereunto thou wast called. And the second letter of Paul to Timothy, chapter 2, and verse 3. Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. So we bow together in prayer. Lord, we want to thank you that we have been in your presence and your spirit has opened up our hearts to you. And Lord, we just want to praise you once again for all that you are to us. But now as we come to your word, we need you, Lord. We need you in a special way. We don't want to just hear a sermon 
or some kind of biblical outline. We want to hear you, Lord. And to that end, we need that anointing that you've provided. You have so marvelously, so fully, so sufficiently provided an anointing of power and grace and wisdom. And we want to stand into that anointing for the speaking and for our hearing also, Lord, that this time may be a time in which you can fulfill all your purpose for our being together. Lord, then we commit ourselves to you and we shall give you all the praise and the glory in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. I don't think I can go over really what we have said in the last two evenings, but I'm, I, I know that those times have been recorded. But they are both very necessary to anything that we have to say this morning. Um, although you may gain something from this morning, you need those other two times to fully understand and balance what we have to say uh, this morning. The fact of the matter is that you and I as children of God are born to battle. And we have to, uh, we have to recognize that very simple fact that we are in a hostile spiritual environment. We have been born into a world that lies in the evil one. And um, although we are joined to the head, our Lord Jesus, who has won a complete and absolute victory over the prince of this world and cast him out, we as the body have much work to do in declaring and establishing and realizing that victory in our local, personal, family, business relationships. And um, really I have spoken quite a lot about the battle. I've spoken um, quite a lot about our present world situation and where we are. Anyone who has not woken up now, I doubt we'll ever wake up. Um, I despair sometimes going around the Lord, but they are unbelievable. No wonder the Lord called us sheep. Um, sheep are unbelievable creatures for dumbness. Goats are so intelligent and sheep are so stupid. And the Lord calls us sheep. And for some reason we are always looking in the wrong direction, always getting into the wrong areas, and I don't know what else. And um, uh, it, it seems to me that if, if a child of God hasn't woken up to the fact that we are in the last phase of, uh, of this age, um, for however long that may go on, we are in that last phase, I wonder whether they will ever wake up. Because the signs are now so clear and so defined that if we are not alerted by those signs, I wonder whether we ever will be. Well, I'm not, I'm going to resist the temptation to go back into that matter. What I want to point out now this morning is uh, how more areas of this battle that we're in and how to face it and how to establish that victory which is ours in the Lord Jesus. Isn't that interesting what the Apostle Paul says to the church at Corinth? 
You know, that church was an unbelievable church. It was so gifted, so clear as to its calling. It, it, he says that the testimony of Jesus was confirmed among you. Now, I think that is something tremendous. There are not that many companies, I could say, the testimony of Jesus has been confirmed amongst you. And yet in his opening words of the first letter, the Apostle Paul speaks to the church at Corinth and he says, you know, you are so gifted, you are so enriched, you have such understanding and the testimony of Jesus is confirmed amongst you. But in this very company there were all kinds of factions and divisions. In spite of the gifts of the Spirit, in spite of the manifestation of the Spirit, in spite of their understanding of their calling, in spite of the fact that the testimony of Jesus was confirmed amongst them, Still, there were the most unbelievable situations. There were those who said they were of Paul, and those who said they were of Apollos, and those who said they were of Kephas, and there were those who were exclusives. Um, they were of Christ, and wouldn't touch the others with a ten-foot pole, as you say, over this side. And on our, our side, we say a barge pole. And, um, um, I mean, and then you had a son sleeping with his mother, can you believe such a thing in a company in whom the testimony of Jesus was being confirmed? There were people taking one another to law. Believers taking other believers to law. Can you believe such a thing? There were people getting drunk at the Lord's table where you couldn't hear. But still that's by the way. But it shows you what kind of wine they were drinking at the Lord's table. I mean, they were getting drunk on the stuff. It's unbelievable. I tell you, if you were in that company, you would have said, I'm out. I am not staying in this company one single moment longer. I'm getting out of this thing. It's a, a hellish pothole. It's uh, every evil thing is in this group. Yet this was a true church in the sense that it was founded on the Lord Jesus, in the sense that it wasn't denominational, in the sense that it wasn't institutional, it was organic, it was, it was under the government of the Lord Jesus, it was gifted by the Holy Spirit, led by the Holy Spirit, inspired by the Holy Spirit, and with every kind of moral problem you can imagine. And now the Apostle Paul says to them, we do, though we walk um, in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. These people were warring according to the flesh. They had all kinds of arguments with one another. If someone takes someone else to court, I mean, there's obviously some kind of wars going on. We don't war, he says, according uh, to the flesh. He says, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but mighty in the presence of God, or in the power of God's presence, operative, functional, when uh, uh, used in the presence of the Lord, to the casting down of strongholds. Don't you think there were satanic strongholds in uh, that company of God's children? Don't you think the very fact of the indulgence that could lead to drunkenness at the Lord's table was a satanic stronghold? Don't you think this 
this party spirit that was dividing the church into four sections was a satanic stronghold? Don't you think that some of these other cases of immorality were demonic, unclean spirits pressing in upon the people of God and bringing all the filth and depravity of the Corinthian world outside right into the heart of the church of the Lord Jesus, the body of the Lord Jesus? Don't you think that there you had imaginations that needed to be hurled down through the weapons um, of the Spirit? Don't you think that there were high things exalted against the true knowledge of God in that company? Don't you think there were thoughts that needed to be brought into obedience into captivity, to obedience to Christ. You see, every problem amongst us as the people of God starts with a thought or an imagination. Believe me, you can take this matter on a local level. There are things locally that can be strongholds. There can be these imaginations, these high things exalted. Take, for instance, evolutionary theory. What a high thing exalted against the knowledge of God that is. And a whole number of other things. Take humanistic philosophy. What a high thing exalted against the... This is on the higher scale, on the, on the local or national scale or international scale. But when we come to our own fellowship here, this dear... Say, born of God, company of God's children at Corinth. There were satanic strongholds. And what Paul was really saying was this, where are the brothers and sisters that can hurl down, cast down this stronghold of the enemy? Where are their brothers and sisters who can cleanse the atmosphere without, without trying to um, impose their ideas on one another, but cleanse the whole atmosphere and bring thoughts into captivity to obedience to Christ. Where are the, the brothers and sisters who can war the warfare of the service and throw down imagination? Sometimes I find people have a fixed imagination about another brother or another sister and nothing can shift it. They've got something in them that is suspicious or something that feels that, and it doesn't matter what happens, everything in fact that happens confirms the suspicion because the enemy is, it, it's a work that has to be cast down is a very strong word in Greek this casting down it really I think in some of your most modern versions is hurling down it is something that has to be thrown down hurled down and it's not done by noise and it's not done, done by human might and power it is done through weapons mighty through God now, the sword of the Spirit is the only way that you and I will ever be able to deal with this. Now, I, mu I must tell you, I, uh, I could confidently predict that the work of the Lord here will not go through into another generation in health and soundness and power 
with the glory of the Lord unless we learn how to war the warfare of the service. There have got to be people who, who can take these things behind the scenes and somehow or other drag them out before the Lord and execute them in the name of the Lord. So that these various things that the enemy would use to destroy or to to uh, impose his will upon uh, the people of God or to frustrate the purposes of the Lord uh, amongst us, uh, these things may uh, be dealt with. Now, that is my burden. That is the matter that uh, Bergeron asked me if I would talk a little bit about in these things, the whole question of spiritual warfare. I don't have any doubt at all that it is absolutely strategic and vitally necessary for any company of God's children to understand and to experience. So now I'd like to um, uh, underline one or two things in the light of all that. We have no need to be afraid of the enemy. Why do we give the enemy more than we ought to? That he is a vast intelligence. That he has a planned strategy. That he has cunning devices. We must recognize. We're not up against some simpleton. Some empty-headed moron that we can very easily outwit or some kind of creature that if we make enough noise, he will fly out of the door with his tail between his legs. This is not the enemy we're up against. We are up against superior intelligences. These angelic beings created by God fell. And they have enormous intelligence. And not only intelligence, since they're created beings, they have to have experience. <laughs> and um, these um, beings have been on the job for at least 6,000 years. And over these 6,000 years, they had gained a lot of experience with the human race. Especially with believers. They have accumulated such understanding and such experience with believers that they are no match for us. And therefore, it's possible that we fear. But we have no reason to fear. Absolutely. There is not a strategy of the enemy that has not been brought to naught, to zero, by the work of the Lord Jesus on the cross. And there is not a principality or a power, even Lucifer himself, who has not been brought absolutely to naught by the work of the Lord Jesus. Every one of them has been stripped naked through the work of the Lord Jesus on the cross. Now, once you begin to understand that, that is tremendous. And I'll tell you something else, as the Apostle John says, greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. If we only understood that the Lord Jesus in us, the great victor, the one who has cast him out, the one who has completely destroyed his works, who has brought his power um, to zero, is in us 
by the Spirit of God, we have nothing to fear. What we have to learn is how to come under his headship and how to remain in absolute safety in him. If we could only learn how to remain in him, and that's what it means, put on the whole armour of God, then we will learn the uh, lessons of victory. Now, let me say before I uh, uh, speak a little more on the principle of, uh, of, uh, the corp- of corporate spiritual warfare, um, for what do we pray? In this uh, uh, warfare of the service, for what do we pray? Firstly, it is for the realization of God's purpose. Now, I can put that in a word. It is in Ephesians 1, to sum up all things in Christ. Or, to put it another way, to head up all things in Christ. So, this is the end of the Lord. This is the purpose of God. And everything that's happening amongst the nations, everything that's happening in us, as those who are saved by the grace of God, has this great end. All gospel work, the preaching of the gospel of the kingdom in all the world for the testimony uh, to all nations. This has as its end the summing up of all things in Christ. So here is the first thing. We know that there is an enemy and he is seeking to do every single thing possible to frustrate that eternal purpose of God to head up all things or sum up all things in Christ. So here is the first thing. What are we praying for? We know that God the Father purposes that in the Messiah everything is going to be summed up and headed up. And we know that is a glorious purpose and that the Lord is going to fulfill it. Now we have something that we understand in this battle. Anything that robs the Lord Jesus of his glory, anything that robs the Lord Jesus of his headship, anything that robs the Lord Jesus of his fullness is something you and I can come against in the name of the Lord Jesus. This is one of the goals of spiritual warfare. Here is the second thing, and not always understood, especially in more spiritual companies. Um, uh, the end of spiritual warfare is to pray for all men, for kings, for all in authority, that we might live a peaceful and tranquil life, that the gospel may be preached, and that all might come to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus. I don't understand a lot of God's people. They are so separated from the world, so exclusively separated from the world, they feel the world's going to hell, and as far as they're concerned, as long as they're only bothered about their own salvation, and about their own fullness, and their own deepening of spiritual life, and possibly getting to the throne and reigning, that's the only thing that bothers them. Don't worry about the rest. Why should we pray for the presidency here in the United States? I mean, it's the world. And why should we pray uh, for the White House? It's the world. 
Why should we pray for the State Department? It's the world. Now, it is the world. I don't have any problem about that. It is the world. But in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 1, it says, I command, you better read it so that you know that it's there. I exhort therefore, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, thanksgivings be made for all men, for kings and for all that are in high place. And then he goes on to say why. I say anyone who doesn't pray for the leader of their nation or the government of their nation is transgressing. They are actually disobedient to the revealed will of God. The church of God is meant to be salt in the world. The church of God is meant to be a city set on a hill that can, can be seen by all men. A light on a bushel that gives light in darkness. And we as the people of God are not meant to spend all our time praying for political things. Praying for economic things. But we are meant to pray that God himself will bring righteousness into the government of a nation. Anybody who's lived in under unrighteousness or totalitarian iniquity will know exactly what I am talking about. We need to pray, however weak, however worldly, however humanistic our governments are, we have a responsibility before God to pray for the preservation of righteousness, for the preservation of purity, for the preservation of some kind of incorrupt in government. We need to pray out the corruption and pray in incorruption. Do you understand what I mean? Now, may I take this uh, uh, one step further? When Paul wrote this letter to Timothy, he was about to be executed by the very king that he was telling everyone to pray for. Judged by the very, very people in high place. These were godless men. They had no respect for the word of God. No respect for the Lord God. In fact, many of these things, especially the Roman Emperor, believed that he was God in the flesh. And I could hear some spiritual people saying, pray for him. Well, the best thing to do is to pray that he be removed and into hell as quickly as possible. You see, I mean, here we have it in the Word. And it's not just here, it's in Peter, Peter's letters, it's in Paul's Roman letter. You'll find it not just in one place, but in a whole number of places. We are to be subject to the high, the, the uh, ordinances of man, to the laws of our country. We are to pray for those in authority. Now, I believe this is very, very important. It's not that we want to be sidetracked or diverted in our prayer ministry, but there is an area of prayer where only those who know something of prayer warfare can touch things in a national government, can touch areas even in what we call political life that will enable a country to live in peace and tranquility so that the gospel may be preached and all men may come to a knowledge of our God and Saviour. 
I believe that this is very important. In other words, what I'm really saying is this, that in some very amazing way, the church of God, the true church of God, is a spiritual upholder of law and order in a nation. It is the spiritual custodian of that law and order in a nation. Now, there are times when in the sovereignty of God, he has said, it's over. Just like he did over Nebuchadnezzar. And in one night, Nebuchadnezzar passed away, and in his place came Cyrus. Not just a different man and a different nationality, but a whole, whole different ideology. When God says that uh, the time of Marxism has come to an end, it will come to an end no matter how much they try to keep it going. It's over. And it's the same with any other form. So we must always remember this. God is absolutely sovereign. Now I'm tempted almost to stray from thing, but then we'll be here all day and ask, why do we have to pray when God is absolutely sovereign? Isn't that a good question? I mean, if the Lord can do all things anyway, why do we need to pray? I do not have a good answer for that question. All I know is that in some amazing way, when Daniel started to pray with fasting for those weeks, you remember, all wheels within wheels began to whir, and he had no idea that he was some essential cog almost in those wheels that were setting in motion whole great empires right down to our present time. We hear of principalities, the principality of uh, Persia and the principality of Greece. And we find that they're fighting one another. And we find that the archangel Michael's got involved in this fight. And, I mean, it's all so strange to us, we can hardly understand it, except that here is a man at the heart of it, and he's in prayer. And he's having a very hard time in prayer, until that angel, uh, who had been um, waylaid for, for almost three weeks, by the fight going on between these principalities, finally gets through to Daniel and says, Oh man, greatly beloved. You know, you know the story. Now, I don't think it's fanciful to say that when believers in a company like this really know something about spiritual warfare, they could, without hardly knowing, they could set in motion whole kinds of things, wheels within wheels, that have enormous significance. It's not that we give ourselves great uh, uh, status and think that we're going to influence the whole world. Um, no, but as we're under the direction and government of God, we cannot but influence things. If the Lord directs us to pray about certain things, gives us the power to pray, then we find in some amazing way that we are being used of the Lord. Why does the Lord need to do it? I can only believe that he's teaching us something. There is no area in which the Lord can teach us more about how to reign, how to overcome, how to administer the will of God how to realize the works of God than in intercession. 
And so it seems to me that the Lord's almost saying, now listen, you've got to a certain age, you here in Richmond, uh, you have got to learn how to discern my mind, how to will my will, how to realize my will in different situations, and I'm not going to help, I'm going to stand there, I'll do it all, but if you don't enter in and stand with me, then I'm not going to do it. Things will fall apart. Things will become more and more difficult, more and more frustrated, more and more collisions, more and more incompatibility, more and more unpleasant problems will arise in your midst. Because I'm going to stand aside and I'm just going to let the whole thing happen till you learn how to know my will, discern my mind, and with me work in the dealing of these things in a spiritual way. Now, that's, uh, that's uh, the second thing. Here's the third thing, of course, in uh, the object of our prayer warfare is for the house of God. That's obvious. I don't think I hardly need to dwell on this here in this particular company. Here we are at the very heart of God's purpose, the house of the Lord, the, the building of the house of the Lord. What a battle it is to see the house of the Lord understood. That's the first battle. The second great battle is to get some building taking place. You know, we can know all of it up here and there's no building taking place. There's no relatedness to one another. There's a, now, don't get all upset about this. People have always got this idea that the house of the Lord is perfect. The stones come somehow shifted by angelic intervention into one another, just perfectly. And it's absolutely wonderful. The whole thing's a bed of roses. It's just wafted along on glory as the Lord builds it all. My dear friends, it's not so. I want to tell you that the way many Christians read the New Testament is with rose-coloured spectacles. They don't see Ananias and Sapphiras. They don't see Jezebel's teaching the deep things of Satan. They don't see the Nicolaitans busy at work everywhere amongst them. They don't see immorality. They don't see hypocrisy. They don't see the misuse of gifts. All these things are in the early church. Every one of them. I've already explained about Corinth. Drunkenness at the Lord's table. Gross immorality. Believers taking one another to, to law. And a thousand and one other things. This is the New Testament church that everybody glorifies. Everybody's leaving this for that. If you know what I mean. And then when they get there, they're expecting it all to be perfect. And then they say, oh dear, dear, dear. Look at so and so. What a mess. Look at that family. Oh, what a mess. Look at those children. How terribly ill-disciplined. Look at that. And then we begin. There's immorality. Oh dear, immorality. And over here, there's some believer nearly wanted to kill another believer. Well, in the church, we're the New Testament. We're the house of the Lord. This is disgraceful. The church down here is a builder's yard. There's all bits and pieces all over the place. There's sand here and lime there and stones over here and chip, chip, chip going on here and, and this being chucked out and that being brought in. and The whole thing's a mess. There's pools of water you've got to step over and you've nearly knocked yourself out because someone's left a beam in the wrong place. And I mean, this is the house of the Lord. It's a builder's yard. What does everybody expect? What does everybody expect? They expect the Lord's going to wave a wand over us all and suddenly there it is. Boom! <laughs> it doesn't happen that way. 
Isn't it strange? Uh, um, here is an imagination that needs to be cast down with the weapons uh, that are mighty through God. We had this imagination in our mind. The enemy plays on it. That it's got to be perfect. I've always said to people, listen, when you join it, it won't be perfect. <laughs> but there are people searching all over the world for the perfect church. And they spend their whole life leaving one thing and going to another. Now, my dear friends, I understand it when we're leaving a division to move into something which is open to all believers. I understand that. It's one thing to leave a, a, a foundation that is inadequate for a foundation which is the Lord Jesus. But once we've come to that foundation, we, are, we must be prepared for messes. Every kind of mess. But what we've got to do is to know how to come through. And that requires good soldiers of Jesus Christ. Dave, we've got to know how to deal with these situations spiritually. How not to just um, leave them, nor just to freeze inside over them. Uh, not to be inhibited by them, but how in the name of the Lord to deal with these things. So, here is the house of God. It's uh, the revelation of it that has to be prayed through. There are many people who haven't got the faintest idea what the house of the Lord is, really. I mean, they just have no idea. It's The house of the Lord is somewhere where you meet other believers in. I mean, the house of the Lord is somewhere you can leave your umbrella or your, your purse in. I mean, that's, for them, that's the house of the Lord. We need to pray revelation into people. It's a battle. I tell you, the enemy would stop anybody from seeing what the house of the Lord is. But when we see what the house of the Lord is, the second thing is to get people built. Related. And how is that happening? I'll tell you how it happens in a mess. That's how it happens. If you thought that it was all going to be wonderful and you fell in love with your brothers and sisters and just embraced them and stayed for 50 years in a loving embrace, my dear friends, you've got another thing coming. I have been all over the world and in the first year or two of any work, I see everybody in that, everybody else's embrace. They love before long, there are very few embraces. <laughs> Only for new ones in the fellowship. When the new ones, they get embraced. But everybody else says, oh, so-and-so. I know what he's going to say the moment he stands up on his hind legs. You know, I know that man. I know that sister. Oh, dear me. I wish the Lord had hammer her. You know, that kind of thing that we go, dear Lord, this is where we find building. This is where we find relationship. When we get to know one another. Then we have to determine not to know anything but Jesus Christ in that one and in those believers and Him crucified. Then we've got to find right the way through all the mess. We have to find the Lord inside and find there our um, building material that to, be, to which to be related. The Lord in you and the Lord in me. This is a battle. And then of course... Uh, uh, well, I could go on. What about the growth of the people of God? The multiplication. What about, uh, what about the unity of the Lord? Do we think that we could just stay one? Do you think the enemy is just going to allow us to sort of remain in the unity of the Spirit? No, not at all. But I'll tell you one thing. When we know one another, we know the faults of one another, 
We know the temperaments of one another. We know the weaknesses of one another. We even know the besetting sins of one another. And then we stay together in the unity of the Spirit. That means much more to the Lord than those early glorious days when we didn't know one another. And when we thought it was all so wonderful, actually the Lord was in the midst saying, hmm, they don't understand each other yet. They all, you see, we've got the idea, oh, the Lord was so thrilled in those early days, when we were all full of love for one another, and when we all just moved together, and it was, oh, the Lord was so thrilled. My dear friends, the Lord knew exactly what was in everybody those first years. And he was just saying, wait, just wait. Doesn't mean too much, all this. This euphoria that person amongst them, they all think everything's so wonderful and marvelous. Just wait. Four years. Six years. Ten years. And then it'll mean something to me. When they stay together, when they really love each other, when they come through together, when they allow the Lord, me to do the work in them through the incompatibilities they find with one another, then there will be some glory. But strangely enough, that's when we don't sense the glory. The Lord says there's glory here. Because something is happening in this mess. <laughs> Whereas we say, oh, where is the blessedness that once we knew when first we were together? You understand? Look at the church scene. You will see everywhere all over the United States companies that got together in an absolute glory and went on for about five years, some a few years longer and then fell apart in an enormous spiritual nuclear explosion which has left nothing but disillusioned people and debris all over the place. Isn't it true what I'm saying? But you see, we are so, we're not realists, we're all idealists. Thank God, the one realist is the Lord Jesus. He knew when he brought us together exactly what was in us. He knew what we were capable of when he brought us together. He knew the depravity of our hearts. He knew the weaknesses. And says, we didn't even know them ourselves. As I've often said to you, we're the ones that get shocked by the revelation of ourselves, not the Lord. You know, we find something about ourselves. We're so shocked. We say, now the Lord won't hear me anymore. It's no good me praying because the Lord is now so ashamed of me. He sort of says, Phew. I would have never have saved so-and-so if I'd known they were like that. <laughs> but actually, when the Lord saved you, he knew all about you from the beginning. You understand. So I will not stay any longer on this. Now, there is another area in which we, we need um, to understand as a goal of, uh, in our prayer warfare, and that is for the maturity of the saints. Galatians 4.19, the Apostle Paul opens a little window for us into a whole new area of prayer, agonizing prayer, costly intercession, prayer warfare, true warfare of the service, my little children, of whom I am again in travail, the agony of childbirth it is in Greek, that Christ be formed, and the word has a prefix to it, fully formed. Now, isn't that, did you notice the little word again, again? My little children, 
of whom I am again in travail. So this beloved apostle had once been in travail for them that they could be born of God, that they might come into the salvation of God. He had travailed over them at their birth. And now he was back in an agony of childbirth all over again that Christ be fully formed in them. Here is a missing link. Why is it that in so many companies we grow in knowledge but not in experience? How is it that we can have our Bible studies and everybody gets to know their Bible but their experience lags far, far behind? Why are we not growing up? Why are we not maturing? Why are there not good soldiers of the Lord Jesus Christ? Why can we be so easily knocked out like little babes years after we've been converted and saved? I say there are not people behind the scenes who can pray that kind of maturity into being. The enemy is not going to allow anyone who's been born of God to mature or grow. It was a big enough battle for him to stop them being saved. But now they're saved. His whole aim is to keep them as babes. Keep them on milk. Keep them as little tiny kindergarten as spiritual babes. We need people who can cast down strongholds, cast down imaginations, cast down high things exalted against the knowledge of God, bring thoughts into captivity to obedience to Christ. My dear friends, this is something tremendous, I think. In one place, him, uh, the Apostle Paul speaks of Epaphras and he says, he, he strives for you in his prayers that you may be full grown. And in another place in Colossians, he says, I strive that I may present every man full grown in Christ. My dear friends, this is costly. And we don't expect everybody in a company to be involved in this kind of prayer, but unless there are those who can pray in this vein, in whom the Holy Spirit can conceive burdens for the maturing of the saints, for the growing up of the saints, everything depends in a company of God's people on their growth in the Lord. Understanding their ability to stay together, their understanding of the ways of the Lord, their understanding of how to face problems, everything is dependent upon when you grow, how, how, how you grow up. You know, when I was a baby, I didn't understand much. Uh, my parents understood something. Others understood something. I didn't understand anything. I had no idea some of the things. I remember when I was a little boy in the Blitz of London, um, we were ushered into some great kind of iron table. We thought it was a great game, my sister and I. We had no idea that we might have died that night. But my mother, she had a clear understanding of what was happening. We didn't. We, we weren't able. We just thought it was a great game. And if we felt like it, we tried to get out. Because we thought, we heard these bangs and bombs and things blow. But as children, you know, it didn't really bother us that much. We thought there was fireworks outside, something going on outside. We, we had no idea. I remember seeing the whole of Richmond, Surrey on, on fire from one end to the other. One great sheet of fire with flames, hundred feet into the air. And I remember my mother saying, well, that's the end of Richmond. You'll never see it again. Of course, it wasn't as bad 
um, as it looks. But you know, as children, it, it was awesome, but we didn't understand it. I remember walking around seeing um, uh, buildings with all the front of the buildings out and beds hanging out. People had died in there that night, but it didn't mean anything to me. I was a child. I found it fascinating. Look, those beds are hanging out over the side. All kinds of people's goods hanging out of the buildings and so on. To, to, to a little child, it was amazing. Then it was no good saying, how disgraceful. How disgraceful. He should have been much more sensitive and thoughtful. I was only a little child. So it is with us. How can we expect believers to understand these things when they're little children, when they've never grown, when they've remained as babes years after their salvation? How can we expect them to understand things to do with the purpose of God, the challenge of the purpose of God, the need to be good soldiers of the Lord Jesus, the need to take responsibility for other lives, the need to lay down your life? How can you understand those things when you're only a babe? We need people who can pray these things through. Well, I could go on and on. I mean, um, I think another area that is a goal in uh, spiritual warfare uh, are the servants of God in God's work. Paul says, when he says about praying for all the saints, he says, and, uh, and for me. I'm an ambassador in chains, he says. Pray that in preaching the gospel, I may be able to fulfill my ministry. I believe we have a tremendous responsibility to pray for servants of God all over the world, especially those that are in the front line of God's um, battle and especially those who are suffering for his name's sake. We have such a, a call to, to cover them in the name of the Lord, to uh, stand for the full purpose of God, uh, that they may not be waylaid or, 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 or deceived or whatever else. And uh, then, of course, the one other matter, very important, is a goal in spiritual warfare, praying for the gospel of the kingdom to be preached in all the world for a testimony to all nations. And in this, praying because the harvest is great, that the Lord of the harvest would thrust forth laborers into the harvest. Here are areas where do you think that this work of the gospel is just going to go on? How is it that, why is it, that so often we who see the deeper things, especially through the house of the Lord, have a kind of um, inner resistance to any gospel work, as if it's somehow superficial by its nature, as if it is shallow, as if it is not important. My dear friends, this work of the gospel of the kingdom is vitally important, and even more so in the last phase of world history. So I believe that we need to be clear as to what uh, we need to pray for in uh, spiritual warfare. Now I'd like to say something about uh, the character of spiritual warfare. Uh, what is the real principle of corporate prayer? Well, it's the same whether it's uh, we are in spiritual warfare or whether it's just intercession or even just an ordinary prayer meeting. Uh, 
principle is togetherness. It's as simple as that. We do not pray as if there's nobody else present. I don't know, I go into prayer meetings where quite honestly someone stands up and prays and we might as well not be there. It's all I and I and I and I. I pray, Lord, that you will do so and so. I I think, well, why don't they go home and pray at home? I mean, what am I doing here? I'm right next to them and they're saying, I, 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 I. There's nothing wrong with saying I. But why don't they lead me in prayer? We're the body of the Lord Jesus and they are mouthing what is supposed to be in our hearts. They are communicating the burden that's in the body. Now, sometimes you might feel a little, I mean, you, you sometimes do need to use I. I mean, don't stand up and say, Lord, we all are dead. I mean, maybe we aren't all dead. Maybe you're dead. So maybe you need to say, Lord, I feel dead. That's I. That's correct. Don't put it on us if it's not us. But you see, there are other times when you're praying for somebody, uh, you're praying for some need and so on. Why do you say I? Why do you not say, did our Lord teach us to pray, My Father who is in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give me my daily bread. Forgive me. Lead me not into death. He said, our Father. He taught us to pray our, we, because we have to take a step of faith when we're leading uh, the saints in prayer. And, and so, the, the principle is togetherness. Now, if we're together, we have to ha- be observant of one or two things. <coughs> Don't be long. Some people pray round the whole world. And, I mean, it kills anything. I mean, if someone gets up and prays for ten minutes, it's, I don't care whether they're Daniel. We begin to go to sleep. We can't, you just can't, you can't help it. After a day's work, and there is this person droning on, I don't care if it's Samuel, Daniel, or whoever it is. They're going on and on. You, 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 you try to keep up. You can't do it. And togetherness is the principle. Think of your brothers and sisters. Think of your brothers and sisters. One of our problems in long prayer is we're always adding too much to it. See, having got the courage to open our mouths, we think, now I've got my mouth open, I might as well get in everything that um, I can to the Lord. You know, So we not pray just about the burden that we had, but we add this and that, and, and you can hear a prayer dying. Do you know the kind of thing? All the power is... It's like a puncture. You can hear the air going out of it. And by the time it's ended, a great death has come upon the whole meeting. It is very strange. I mean, now you've heard me all say this before, some of you. I mean, we have these world tours prayers. You know, they start here in Richmond, Virginia, and then they're off to the Caribbean, and from the Caribbean they're down to South America, and then back to Central America, and across to Nigeria. From Nigeria they go to Zaire. From Zaire they fly off to China. And then from China to Japan, and then to Russia, where they stay quite a while. And then into Eastern Europe with glory. And then to London, and then back to Richmond, Virginia. Well, the time they've gone on this world tour, we're nearly dead. Then someone else stands up and they pray for seven different things, all in one breath. I mean, they pray for Brother Kong and his ministry, and then they pray for something else, and then they pray for uh, some group, shall we say, I don't know where, but uh, somewhere. Then they pray for Ernie Hyle, then they pray for Lance Pods, the benighted brother, help him, Lord. And then, and then they go there, and it's all this, and then, then they sit down. I mean, what kind of prayer meeting is it? We don't know where we are. We're here, and then over there, and then up there. 
we've all round the world and then we're back then someone else stands up they start off in Richmond they go in the opposite direction they've gone to the Pacific and then they're back again from Hawaii and then here we are and then someone else stands up they pray for seven ill people someone who's got a migraine a person dying with terminal cancer and somebody who's got gangrene in the toes I mean all together in one day Lord, Lord just do that up the I mean we don't know where we are this is our prayer meeting it's destructive I mean, as Golda Meir once said, when you have friends like ours, you don't need enemies. I mean, I always feel the Lord stands there and says, oh, my dear friend, I don't need Satan. I've got my friends. <laughs> just leave it to them. They'll destroy any prayer meeting. <laughs> it is amazing. What is wrong with us? We just cannot understand the simple principle of togetherness. This matter of togetherness we find in Matthew chapter 18 verses 19 and 20. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. Okay, no sorry. Um, if, okay, I think I better read it. Then we won't get it wrong. Matthew chapter eight, 18 verses 19 and 20. Again I say unto you that if two of you shall agree on earth as touching anything that they shall ask, it shall be done for them of my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. Now will you please notice that this agreement is not that you and I agree to agree, but that the Lord in our midst harmonizes us, or in the Greek, symphonizes us. He actually brings us together. And it is a most amazing and wonderful thing when we're together in the presence of the Lord. And this symphony begins where um, we somehow flow together in prayer and where a matter begins to be prayed, one person prays for it shortly and then another person prays for it and then another person prays for it that adds another dimension to it. And then another person prays and takes that dimension a step further and it's like peeling an onion. You really feel as if you're beginning to get to the heart of the thing and these people sometimes don't even know the person they're praying for. Yet by the Spirit of the Lord they're getting right to the heart of that situation. That is real prayer. And I want to tell you there's nothing more exciting than real prayer. Most prayer meetings are so boring, I understand why most people stay away from them. They are boring. They are the most boring meeting in the routine life of any fellowship. And the reason is we've made it so. So people will go to the Bible study and will come to the worship meeting, will come to a ministry meeting, but, I mean, prayer meeting, they'd rather be dead than seen in a prayer meeting. I mean, I mean I've got more things to do than that. That's not important. One understands. You never see young people in a prayer meeting because it's so unexciting. I mean, all those old folks droning on. The young person thinks, what's this got to do with you? Nothing. But I tell you, when the Holy Spirit is in charge of a prayer meeting, I have seen young people pack into those prayer meetings and have been more... Con when they've got priorities, they'll say, I'll cut everything else out, but I'm going to be at that prayer meeting. Why? Because in the prayer meeting you see things happen that are the illustration of biblical truth. They actually see people praying for things, led by the Spirit of God concerning things, and then they see the answers. Then the prayer meeting becomes the most exciting place in the life of God's people. 
Well, this principle of togetherness is so important. I, I only want to underline it. The second thing about the character of spiritual warfare is the absolute leadership of the Holy Spirit. Our Lord Jesus is at the right hand of God. It is the Holy Spirit who makes him a living reality to us. And so the Holy Spirit takes the burden that is in the heart of the Lord Jesus, brings it into our spirit, and it comes out by the power of the Holy Spirit through the mouths of different believers as we are together and goes back to the Father. Isn't that an amazing thing? It's all fellowship. It is the Lord Jesus and his body in fellowship under the direction of the Holy Spirit. Now, don't ask me why we need to pray in this way. I only know that the Lord does not do things unless we do. But if we learn how to pray in this way, then it is marvellous. You see, the Lord Jesus put it very simply in Matthew 16. Upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Well, now we understand that. But when we look at church history, it seems to us that the gates of hell have prevailed against it. Again and again and again and again. So we have a problem. Then some people say, ah, well, you see, the Lord is building it in the invisible. So apparently it doesn't matter what happens down here. I mean, it's all being done somewhere where we can't see it. But that is nonsense. For the Lord went on to say, Unto thee have I given the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Gates have locks. If we don't learn how to use keys, then it's almost as if the Lord says, My building work will be frustrated. Do you understand? Now, we can lock up the gates of hell and stop the devices and strategies of the powers of darkness from being fulfilled and we can unlock the gates of hell and let out the captives. We have to learn this. This is spiritual warfare. But we can only do it under the leadership of the Holy Spirit. Now I must tell you that there are a thousand and one things done under the name of the Holy Spirit, that the dear Holy Spirit knows nothing about whatsoever. I mean, people are always saying the Spirit led them to do this, and the Spirit led them to do that, and the Spirit told them this, and the Spirit told them that. So we have another problem. Now, how, here we come back to togetherness. Because it, it, the principle is togetherness. It's not that the Holy Spirit just told you and you're going to force through what you think the Holy Spirit told you. It has to be in fellowship. It has to be moderated in fellowship. Do you understand what I mean? Don't be afraid of our brothers and sisters. Even if they have many weaknesses and failings, if you will trust the Lord in them, the best will come out of them. It is amazing. When you share something with a brother that you feel somehow might not be quite uh, uh, free, um, uh, you trust the Lord in him. For some reason, I know it myself, um, uh, there's sometimes people have come to me and asked me something and I dearly wanted to tell them what I think they should do. But the very fact that they've come, I feel an inhibition. <laughs> Isn't that wonderful? A kind of inhibition that I can't tell. I have to tell them what I feel the Lord wants them to do. It's amazing when we trust the Lord in one another. We put each other on our metal when we trust the Lord in one another. 
And even the poorest people suddenly begin to reveal the Lord. So I believe that this is a very important uh, matter, this togetherness, this leisure. Now we must know the will of God if in spiritual warfare. This is one area in which you it's not a hit and miss. You don't just fire um, your weapons or whatever anywhere you think. You know, the understanding that if you fire long enough and in a wide enough range, you're bound to hit something. Um, you can't do this. You can't do it. All you will do, now listen carefully, all you will do is invite enemy attention. When we begin to shoot our uh, ammunition all over the place all we do is reveal where we are and the enemy says silence that they must be silenced we know where they are now we know what they're up to and even though they're making a mess of it just now you never know they might suddenly learn how to do it so we'll wipe them out so my dear friends we have to know what is the will of the Lord now here is something very interesting see in our prayer time so very often our own ideas our own concepts and our own opinions hold sway and you have people who for instance come into a prayer meeting and they have a burden from Nepal it doesn't matter what the rest of the company they have a burden from Nepal and Nepal is going to get mentioned in this prayer meeting I think that's very sad because if the Holy Spirit is leading a whole company of people in another, another direction, why force your burden on them? Why not just leave that burden and trust the Lord that as you move with the people of God in the way the Holy Spirit's leading you, your burden will get answered. Isn't it interesting, this word supplication? In 1 Timothy chapter 2, the Apostle Paul says with supplications, prayers, intercessions, thanksgiving. He puts supplications first. In Ephesians 6, the Apostle Paul says again and again about um, a supplication. He says, um, uh, um, if you look at it in chapter 6, verse 18, with all prayer and supplication, praying at all seasons in the Spirit, watching thereunto in all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. Now this word supplication comes from the uh, Greek word meaning a beseeching appeal. A beseeching appeal. You, it's an appeal that you make to a potentate, a king, a lord, a duke, an emperor. And it, it is not just a, a small appeal. It's a, a, a fervent appeal. A, 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 well, an appeal, if you understand. But somehow that word has lost its... Uh, real meaning in our minds. It's a beseeching appeal. So I love the word inquiry. And that's where we fail so often. Now, instead of stopping for a while and inquiring of the Lord, Lord, how do we pray about this situation? The Lord can lead us. He can actually reveal to us what um, uh, his strategy is. And then once we have that strategy of the Lord, the whole thing begins to take uh, shape. I could give you many, many examples of times when I have been involved in different problems, corporate, sometimes even national, um, where we've had to seek the Lord and really seek Him. And then the Lord has given us the answer. And as we pray that through, we have seen the most amazing things happen. 
Supplication is the gateway. You cannot know anything of real intercession without supplication. And you certainly cannot be involved in spiritual warfare unless first you know what it is to supplicate the Lord or inquire of the Lord. And once you inquire of the Lord, then you'll say, do you remember how King David, again and again, even before he was king, would inquire, uh, shall I go up against them or shall I stay here? Shall I go this way or shall I go that way? Do you remember? And he was told, go this way or go that way or stop still. So this is the, uh, the, the thought behind We inquire of the Lord. We find out what is the direction of the Lord. What is the Lord's mind concerning this uh, situation. Then we must have the word of God in our hand by the Holy Spirit. It is the sword of the Spirit. Now, I said something about that last night so I won't say much more. Other than the way we know the will of the Lord is generally speaking not only that he begins to reveal to us what is the key to this situation but he gives us his word. And once we have that word in our hand, that sword of the Spirit in our hand, the Holy Spirit has given us that word, applied that word uh, to this situation, now we have the weapon. Now what do we do with it? It is truth. So now we make a declaration. Now please understand what I'm saying in this matter. A declaration is not a prayer. It is not a request. It's not maybe or if or possibly. A declaration is a step of faith in which we declare what the Lord has shown to us over a situation. It may be that there is a situation in which the enemy seems to be all-powerful, but we can, the Lord has given us some word that he is in charge of it. He is king over it. He is lord over it. And we declare. And together we stand up and we say, the Lord is king over this situation. This situation is under the feet of our Lord Jesus. Now, we're not saying, Lord, we want this situation to be under our, your feet. Or we're not saying, Lord, please get the victory in this situation. That has come earlier. Now we have come to a point where we can take an action and we make a declaration. This, I believe, is very important. Sometimes it has to be followed by action. In other words, concrete action. We fail very often in this matter. But uh, we don't always take the declaration into some concrete action. But we don't always have to, but very often. Now, I hope this makes sense to you, what I'm saying. It's very, very important. I wish I had the time to illustrate all these things. Um, and I could do so. Now, here is a, a two last points which I believe are very important in this matter of spiritual warfare. We must hide ourselves in the Lord Jesus. Warfare is warfare. Never run into it uh, helter-skelter. Uh, just poof, is always stop for one moment, especially the leadership. Stop and say, let's hide ourselves in the Lord, everybody. This is put on the whole armour of God. Why does it say put on the whole? Christ in Ephesians 6 says, put on the whole armour. It's not good enough to have half the armour on. That means you're vulnerable. In one single area, the enemy can wipe you out even though you have two-thirds of the armor on. If you've got the armor on right up to here, the shield, the sword, and not the helmet, your head is vulnerable. If you haven't got the breastplate on, then your head may be covered, your feet may be shod, your loins may be gone, but your heart can be gone. 
there's, oh, if you haven't got the shield of faith, a fiery dart can get in between the armour. You know where the armour actually came? There were joints, and it can get right in between. A fiery dart with poison in it. So you're paralysed, you're knocked out. That's why we need every bit of this armour. Now, some people get neurotic about this. Oh, they say, you know, oh, well, that, I can't come to a prayer meeting like that. I mean, they spend the whole time thinking, when uh, have I got something on my feet? Have I got my loins? And have, I got my, have I got my hair done? Have I got the shield? Have I got the sword? You know, and then they think, and the enemy says, something's missing, something's missing. And you say, yes, something's missing. Let's look again. <laughs> you know, I heard one brother once say, stand in front of a mirror. Stand in front of a mirror and sort of put on the armour, you see. He said, this will help. I think that's just a neurosis. <laughs> I think that's terrible. Have the believer standing in front of a mirror sort of putting something on here and something on here and something on here. I mean, that's so sad. My dear friends, this armour is the Lord Jesus. All you have to do is hide yourself in him. That's where you are. You abide in him. Only remember all these parts of the armour. They're very important. So if each time you hide yourself in the Lord Jesus, remain or abide where God has put you through your salvation, you are perfectly safe. You don't have to get neurotic and say, Oh, I do believe I've left something off my feet. Oh, I think my head's not covered. You can hide in the Lord. But just remember that all this armour is named so that we know um, that there are areas in which we can be caught out. An unforgiving spirit. Listen. Feet shod with the gospel of the preparation of peace. When we're out of peace with one another, our feet cannot walk together. We cannot move together. You see, and then there's trouble. An unforgiving spirit. It's the best way to be vulnerable to the enemy if we've got bitterness in our heart. Now this can be between husband and wife. It can be between parents and children or children and parents. It can be between brother and brother in the fellowship or brother and sister. It's an unforgiving spirit, a bitterness of spirit. That means we've not got the whole armour on. It's very important. Then let me say, dishonesty. The breastplate of righteousness, of course it is the righteousness of the Lord Jesus, but you cannot hide behind that justifying work of His and be dishonest. If you are, then somehow you're vulnerable in this battle. Then take this matter of unbelief. We can have an evil heart of unbelief. You can't take the shield of faith. And, and, and say, I don't believe, I don't believe. I think this is a fairly story. I don't believe any of those. I don't believe the Lord breaks into situations. I don't believe He can heal people. Oh, that's rubbish. I don't believe there are such things as demons. So what's the point? Unbelief. Evil heart of unbelief. All these things we need. Put it into the positive. We need love. We need oneness. We need faith. One other point about spiritual warfare. Wrestling is not a minute sport. In other words, what I mean is this. 
It says, for we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities, against the powers, against the world rules of this darkness, against hosts of wicked spirits in the heavenlies. Now, wrestling means, first, you've got to get a grip. And there are times when you might have your opponent sitting on top of you and he's got a grip on you. It doesn't mean you won't win. Wrestling is a contact sport. It's not a nice, pleasant kind of thing, like, t like tennis. I mean, which is a upus pile, of course, especially in the humidity here. But I mean, the fact is, it's a very, very polite sport. Wrestling is vulgar. You have almost naked flesh sitting on almost naked flesh dripping with perspiration. It is a horribly uh, physical sport. Isn't it interesting that the Apostle Paul did not say we are involved in a lawn tennis championship? <laughs> not with flesh and blood, but with the principalities, the powers, the world rules, the stars, the hosts of we. He said, we wrestle not. Now, I want to point out that there is a perseverance needed in prayer. If we think the spiritual warfare is that we can identify uh, the enemy in a moment and then immediately down him, we have another thing coming. We have to be under the direction of our head. Sometimes it will take days, sometimes weeks, sometimes months sometimes years, sometimes a lifetime. But we have to learn through faith and patience or endurance to inherit the promises of God. doesn't take a lot when it happens at once. It's exciting when you go into a prayer meeting and pray for something and immediately it's answered. What a swell it is for everybody. And of course the Lord does it sometimes just to encourage us. So we all say, isn't that amazing? We pray for something and the whole thing changed instantly. And I gave you one or two examples last night of things that when people pray for, the whole situation was changed almost immediately. But don't let us think that that happens every single time. It doesn't. Wrestling is wrestling. And there are times when the enemy sits on us. When it's all, it feels it's such heaviness. Because we've got all those 250 pounds sitting right on top of us and we're pinned underneath with hardly any breath left in us. This is warfare. Now, my dear friends, there are so many other things one could say about this matter, but I think we have to finish. There's a limit to what we can take in. But you know, when we look at all these matters that we've been talking about, I believe that uh, we can together move like an army under the direction of the Lord of the armies. I think that's a marvellous thing. And therefore, really, we have a challenge here. A challenge to be involved. Our Lord Jesus said again and again concerning the last phase of world history, watch and pray. Isn't that interesting? Why did he say watch? Did he mean just don't go to sleep? Because he means keep awake. Or did he mean more than just keep awake? Watch. 
see what the Lord is doing and see what the enemy is doing. Have an understanding of the time. And as you watch, you will be able to pray. If you don't watch, you will not be able to pray effectively. But if you watch the Lord and what he's doing and come under his direction, you will be able to pray effectively. Watch and pray. It's a challenge to be involved in this kind of prayer. And then the second part of the challenge is to grow in the Lord. Some of you are young in the Lord. And as you've listened to me, you've wondered, well, I don't think I could be uh, involved in this. Oh, yes, you can. You have no idea what the Lord could do with you, however young you are in physical years. If once you commit yourself to the Lord, He will start your education and your training and you will be surprised how He begins to lead you with others into this whole matter of a real prayer warfare. Thirdly, the challenge is to suffer hardship. Now what does he mean, uh, the Apostle Paul, suffer hardship? He meant really suffer discipline. Um, the training of a soldier is not a, a, a bed of roses. Um, there are all kinds of things involved in training to harden a person, to harden their muscles, to develop their muscles, to, to develop their responses and reactions. Uh, it is... It is no easy job. And no one can be a soldier unless he's prepared to suffer hard discipline and hardships. And that's why the Apostle Paul says, suffer hardship. Now, in the affluent society in which we live, a kind of effect, effeminate, kind of spineless, anemic Christianity has swept through the whole of evangelical and even charismatic Christianity. It's all a question of what I get, how I can be satisfied, how I can be fulfilled, and all the rest of it. And we don't want anything to do with um, hardship or discipline. But there's no way to become a soldier of the Lord Jesus. We can only become soldiers of the Lord Jesus if we're prepared to suffer hardship and prepared to be disciplined and prepared for training. Here is the challenge. Are you ready for that? And the last thing that I believe uh, is uh, a challenge to us is to be in fellowship with one another. Suffer hardship with me. Sometimes it's easier to suffer hardship on one's own. But uh, we have to be related. Here was this apostle from whom all the churches turned away. Sometimes we think, of course, he had to be in the right and they had to be in the wrong. But I don't have much doubt myself that if we knew the real situation, we listened to the church's complaints and these different brothers and what they would say and they would talk about Paul's weaknesses in this way and his failings in that way and how sometimes he, he was so quick and, and a bit impetuous and, and uh, you know, I mean, look at the way he wrote that letter. First he says, I'm sorry I've written the letter and now he says, I see that it's absolutely right that I wrote it. You know, I mean, how can you trust the man? I mean, um, uh, and, and so on. And so, you know, there were reasons why those churches 
has turned away. I'm not. Ju- I ju- I've got to meet Paul about this, so I don't want uh, to justify them against him. But I mean, uh, what I'm just saying is this: that uh, uh, um, it's never all one-sided. I don't have any doubt. I remember once asking Miss Fishbacher when I was young in the Lord, Elizabeth Fishbacher, who was such an amazing soldier of the Lord Jesus. Did Brother Nee have any faults? And I remember her turning around with those big eyes looking at me and saying, Faults? Faults? She was always rather histrionic. Faults? Brother Nee have faults? Brother Nee was a great man, she said, with great faults. <laughs> I've never forgotten it was such a shock to me. I thought, well, of course, you can't have a single fault, I mean. Well, I can tell you from my, dear ex- my experience of dear brother Sparks, he was a great man with great faults. And I've no doubt that there are many people who could say of me, he's not so great, but he has great faults. <laughs> We've all got faults. The nearer we get to one another, the more we see them. And here is this beloved Apostle Paul, with all his problems, all his temperament, all his weaknesses and failings, he's near the end and he says to his beloved Timothy, suffer hardship with me. Stay with me. Let's go through together. Let's not just fall out, but let's move together in the Lord, knowing full well what we are in ourselves. Let us find the Lord in one another and let the Lord discipline us and train us and, and, uh, and qualify us, educate us so that we learn the lessons we need to learn. May the Lord bless every one of us and may he use these uh, words that we have uh, given on this whole matter of uh, spiritual warfare to challenge and to re-energize us, redefine things, clarify things, encourage what needs to be encouraged, correct what needs to be corrected. And may we all be good soldiers of the Lord Jesus. Shall we pray? Lord, we, we want to be good soldiers of yours. Forgive us, Lord, that so often we draw back from the hardship and the discipline and the training. But Lord, hear our cry and reach our hearts this morning. And Lord, challenge us on the deepest levels of our beings to be all that you want us to be, not only individually, but together. Lord, will you teach us how to war this warfare of the service? Will you teach us how to fight this good fight of faith and lay hold on the life eternal to which we are called? Teach us, Lord, how to cast down strongholds, casting down these imaginations and these high things exalted against the knowledge of God and bringing these thoughts into captivity to obedience to Christ. Lord, teach us. You only can teach us. 
Teach us how to stand against the coming strategies and devices of the devil. Teach us how to withstand and having done all, stand in your will and your purpose with your word so that we shall see victory after victory registered on this earth in lives, in human situations, in relationships, marriages and families and businesses and our life together as your people. In the work of the gospel, Lord, hear us as we commit ourselves to you. We are unworthy servants of yours, Lord. We have to say that, and unprofitable. But you have saved us, and you have called us, and you have said that you will never leave us, nor forsake us. Dear Lord, fulfill your purpose in our lives, each one, and in our life together, as your people. We ask it in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.